Second Chronicles chapter 7. Let's read from verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven, when I shut up heaven, and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked and do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom as I covenanted with David your father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man as ruler in Israel. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments then that I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot them from my land which I have given them and this house which I have sanctified for my name I will cast out of my sight and will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And as for this house which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done thus and this to this land and to this house? And then they will answer, Because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and embraced other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this calamity on them. So we've gone through part of this section of scripture and we're going to pick up today in verse 17 and 18 as for you if you walk before me as your father David walked and do according to all that I have commanded you if you keep my statutes and my judgments then I will establish the throne of your kingdom as I covenanted with David your father saying you shall not fail to have a man as ruler in Israel We are to walk before him as the holy nation that we have become in Christ. Peter writes this in his letter in 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He says that God called us out of darkness into the light that we might proclaim the praises of him. And so we are called to walk as that holy nation. And that walk is a walk of faith, but it's a walk that is empowered by grace. In other words, we can't walk this walk apart from God's grace. And as we look at the scripture, and as we consider King David and King Solomon, especially those two, because they are very vivid pictures of Christ. We see that they are also pictures of God's grace. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 8, you once were darkness but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Darkness is not who we 
seem to be like. Darkness is not describing our behavior. He says, you once were darkness. Darkness describes our nature. It describes who we are. But he says, now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Darkness is who and what we were before God called us out and into light. Now by his grace and by his power, not by our works, we have become light in the Lord. And if we are light, then let us walk as children of light. The covenant that God is making here with Solomon, the covenant that he made with Abraham, the covenant that he made with Moses, the covenant that he makes with his people is a covenant that has conditions placed upon it. But the keeping of the covenant is rooted in God's grace given to us in Christ. It's not rooted in our ability to keep the covenant. It's rooted in God's promise that he will, for his namesake and for the sake of his son, keep his covenant with his people. It is rooted in the finished work of Christ not in the works of man's flesh. That's why the Bible says that we can have assurance of our salvation. God gives us assurance of our salvation, not permission to continue in our sin. And that's, that's not the point of grace. The point of grace is not to give us permission to continue in our sin. The point of grace is to reveal that in spite of our inability to deliver ourselves from sin and God demands righteousness and holiness that in spite of our inability to deliver ourselves, he has in his grace kept his covenant with us for the sake of his name and for the sake of his son Solomon and the people of Israel were given the choice to obey or to rebel to enjoy or to suffer the consequences of their choices. And what they could not do, though, through their practical obedience was negate the need for God's grace. In other words, you can't be good enough that you don't need God's grace, and you can't be so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. God knew when he created Adam and put Adam in the earth that there would only be one man that would walk in perfect holiness and perfect righteousness before him. That man wasn't Adam. That man wasn't Moses. That man wasn't David. That man wasn't Solomon. That man, that woman is not you or me. That man is Christ Jesus. He was the one man God purposed to walk before him in holiness and righteousness. Our obedience can bring us good for a measure of time, but our obedience cannot save us. We are saved by the grace of God. But in our salvation that God gives to us by his grace... Our willing obedience will bring much good. It can produce much joy. It should produce much joy. And give God great glory. Isaiah writes that if we are willing and obedient, we will eat the good of the land. That's in Isaiah 119. 
So ultimately, the chief thing is the glory of God. In Christ, we experience the good he works in all things. This is the promise Paul gives to us in Romans chapter 8, that he works all things together for good to those that love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. Do you believe that, church? Do you believe that in spite of what you might be walking through right now, that God, the God who is the creator of heaven and earth, before the foundations of the world were formed, God had a plan and a purpose. Before you were created, God had a plan and a purpose. And your very creation was part of God's plan and part of God's purpose. And everything that we walk through in this life is part of the plan and the purpose of God. And if we believe that, if we trust in God's sovereign grace, if we trust that God is sovereign over his creation, then we can latch on to this promise that in the midst of everything, in spite of the good, the bad, the ugly, the bitter, the sweet, that in all things God works together those things for his glory and for our good. He works all things together for good to those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. He does this in Christ Jesus. Christ is the promised land. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good of the land. Christ is the land that God promised to his people. Christ is the land that's flowing with milk and honey. Christ is our dwelling place. Christ is the place where we abide. Christ is the place of life, the place of fruitfulness, the place of of safety, the place of refuge. He is the promise. He is the good and fruitful land that's flowing with milk and honey. Don't turn away, but taste and see that the Lord is good. Don't let life, and don't let the cares of this life, this is what we see in the parable of the soils, in the parable of the sower, that the seed of the word is sown, but the cares of this life choke out the seed but if we will walk before him if we will trust him God has made promises to us verse 19 and 20 but if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments then I God says, I will uproot them from the land. This is what we see in Solomon's life, that Solomon eventually veered off the path of God and into idolatry and self-indulgence. And God, like a good father in his grace, brought Solomon back. Solomon chronicles this in the book of Ecclesiastes. Listen to the words of Solomon in summary from Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. 
For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's a fearful statement. But let me read another statement to you from the scripture. Over in 1 John, you should mark this in your Bible. 1 John chapter 4. Verse 16, and we know that we know and believe that love, the love that God has for us, God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Verse 17, 1 John chapter 4, love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Why? Because as he is, so are we in this world. Solomon says everything would be brought into judgment. Every work, every secret thing, every open thing will be judged by God. John says in this love has been perfected. That in the day of judgment, we have boldness and confidence. Because as he is, as Christ is in this world, so are we. Church, that's grace. That's grace. And that grace should motivate us. The judgment of God is not pleasant, but it is graceful. The judgment of God concerns both justice and mercy. God is just, so he will judge sin. God is merciful, therefore he will judge sin. He will judge a sinful world in justice and he will correct his sinful children in mercy. You know why God won't allow you to persist in your sinfulness unhindered? Because you're his child. If God allows you to go on in life and he doesn't intervene, if he doesn't challenge you, if he doesn't bother you, if God chooses to leave you alone, that's not a good thing. The fact that God won't allow you to go through life unhindered without intervention means that you are his child. If you feel as though God is bringing correction to you, if you're wondering why you might be walking through certain circumstances, why you're struggling with certain things, you think, God, can't you give me a break? Our response should be, God, what are you trying to communicate to me? God, what are you trying to show me? God, what is it that you are trying to reveal to me? You may or you may not get an answer. You do realize that, don't you? But here's here's what we need to understand. Whether we get the answer we want when we want it, or whether we ever get the answer. The fact that God has intervened in your life, the fact that God is working and moving in your life in ways that you can't even realize right now is a good thing. That is His grace. Because you are His child, He will not leave you to yourself to do the things that you might want to do Because you are his child, he will intervene in your life. This is the grace of God. He will deal with our sinfulness. This is why in this 
these verses, God doesn't say, if I close up the heavens. He says, when I close the heavens. Why did God say when instead of if? Because God knows that man is born sinful. God knows that in our birth, we are born in sin. And sin is not, it's not a question of if sin's going to happen. Sin is. It permeates everything in the creation. And the fact that God doesn't leave the creation alone and leave it to itself and leave us to ourselves, the fact that he will shut up heaven, the fact that he did command the locusts to come, the fact that he does intervene in our life, yes, in painful ways. I'm going to the dentist tomorrow. And I, I, they can't deaden my tooth. And so the dentist has been doing these temporary fixes that don't require any painful work. And the temporary fixes don't last. And finally, the last time, he says, well, he said, I'm going I'm to have to get you in this chair, and we're going to have to do what we got to do. He's going to bring an associate who's supposed to be an expert at deadening teeth. I, I get sweaty and nervous just thinking about it right now. I have an unnatural fear of the dentist. I'm like the marathon man. You ever seen that movie? The Nazi doctor, the Nazi dentist? But you know what? My dentist is going to do this because he feels like it's what's best for me. Because if I don't fix this, it may involve some pain. If I don't fix this right now, there's going to be more pain and more suffering and, and greater issues in the future. So because he's a good dentist, he says, you might have to endure a little bit of pain, but we've got to fix this to prevent deeper issues later. Listen, that is exactly what God does in our life. If God didn't love you, he'd leave you alone. But the fact that he doesn't leave you alone, the fact that he does love you, the fact that he says, I'm not going to let that sin remain in your life. I'm not going to allow you to continue on this path because you don't know it, but this path is leading to greater destruction, ultimate death, ultimate destruction. And so God says, I'm going to intervene because I love you. This is what a good father does. This is what... God does. This is why judgment is not just about justice, but judgment is about mercy. Because God judges his children, and in that judgment, he brings correction, which is an act of grace and an act of mercy. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. This is an admonition given by Paul concerning an unrepentant brother. Sounds pretty harsh. That didn't come from a seeker-sensitive church service. We don't like to talk about things like that in church because people get kind of nervous. So we just like to avoid the topic of sin altogether. and We just want to talk about as my friend says, unicorns, rainbows, and puppy dogs. That's the God that we worship. The God of unicorns, rainbows, and kittens. All this sin stuff, all this judgment stuff, don't talk about that. You're going to scare people off. So if we don't talk about those things, all we're doing is just walking down the primrose path, and then when you get to the abyss and you fall off, I'm just standing there watching you fall to your death. 
And I just go back. Oh, well. No, that's, that's not love. That's not kindness. That's not mercy. And that's not grace. And when Paul says this hard thing, turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved. Paul was saying, have mercy on this man. Don't pet his sin. Don't approve of his sin. Don't tolerate his sin. Turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his soul might be saved. This is a picture of God's grace. It's a fearful and a terrible thing to be turned over to Satan for the destruction of your flesh that your soul might be saved. But it's the grace of God that will allow your flesh to be destroyed so that your soul may be saved. Just as Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? Well, it doesn't profit him anything. Losing your soul in hell is much more terrible than the destruction of your flesh. If we are in Christ, God in his grace promises to deal appropriately with our sin to our ultimate salvation. This is the point of this scripture. God's giving a promise to his people. Listen, when the heavens are shut up, when the plague comes, when things happen, turn to me, humble yourself, call upon my name, pray and seek my face and turn from your wicked ways and I will hear from heaven. I will forgive your sin and I will heal your land. God's judgments are expressions of his justice and his grace. Grace because the purpose of God's judgment is to move his people from a place of wicked rebellion to fruitful obedience. God is working his graceful purpose in and through all things. God knows how to produce sweetness out of the bitter dealing in our life. Verse 21 and 22 As for this house which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and this house? Then they will answer, Because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they embraced other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore he has brought all this calamity upon them. Solomon had just finished the temple. They were dedicating the temple. And in the very midst of the dedication of this temple, God is foretelling of the day when the temple will be destroyed. If God would allow the temple of his son's body to be destroyed, don't think that it's strange that he would bring about the destruction of an earthly temple. Remember, we read the scripture in John where Jesus is standing in the midst of the temple, and and they said, if you truly are the Messiah, show us a sign. He said, here's the sign I'll give you. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up again. And they said, it took 46 years to build this temple. How are you going to raise it up in three days? You are crazy. And then John writes this, they did not understand, for he spoke spiritually of the temple of his body. Now Solomon built the first temple in Israel. It was glorious. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. And in 586 B.C., 
the Babylonian army came back to Jerusalem and they utterly and completely tore it down and ravaged the city in keeping with exactly what God said would happen because Israel would not relent of its sinfulness. And then after the captivity, Ezra and Nehemiah lead the children of Israel back and they rebuild the temple, second temple. And when Jesus Christ walks into the temple, it is that second temple that Jesus walks into that had been added on to and embellished by Herod, by the Herods. So that in Roman times, in the day of Jesus, that he walked the earth, in those days, there is the second temple. Now this huge compound that had been built. And Jesus stands in the midst of this compound and he says, here's your sign, tear this temple down and in three days I'll rebuild it. They crucified Jesus. And three decades later, the Romans came and they destroyed the temple again. And to this day, since 70 AD to this day, that temple has not been rebuilt. That temple has not been rebuilt. But guess what temple was raised up in three days? It was the temple of the Lord's body. It was the true temple that was destroyed when they crucified Jesus. It was the true temple that was raised up three days later, later when the Father raised him from the dead. Now, why is that significant? Because Paul and Peter both tell the church, you are the temple of God. You are the house of God. You are lively stones being built up into a holy habitation of God. It is in you, church, the temple, that spiritual sacrifices are being offered up to God. It is you, church, that are the holy temple of the Lord, the dwelling place of God in the earth today. Isaiah writes, Where is the house you will build for me, O man? Earth is my throne. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? You are the house God has built. You are the house God is building. You are the stones cut out. Not from an earthly mountain, but from the spiritual mountain, the spiritual rock who is Christ. The temple was only an expression in the natural of that spiritual truth that Christ is the true temple. The temple was a signpost that directed our eyes and our feet to Christ. We are the body. We are his house. We are a holy temple in the Lord. He raised up his son after three days. He has raised us up in Christ by grace through faith. Jesus has done what no earthly king could do. King David was called a man after God's own heart. But King David was not a picture of perfect or even near-perfect obedience. David was a picture of God's free grace. The heart for God that David had that the Scripture speaks of is a heart that was given to David by God. It was a gift of grace given to him by God, not a product of David's obedience. The obedience and the repentance that David practiced 
as it is with all of us, was a gift of God's grace. David was promised a man to sit on the throne forever. And Jesus, the son of David, is that eternal king. King David and King Solomon were both imperfect pictures of the coming king who is perfect. The Lord Jesus Christ. And God chose David by grace just as he chose us in Christ by grace. Paul says before the foundations of the world, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. It is grace that gives us the power and the ability to do his will. It is grace that, get, that keeps us when we fall. It is grace that picks us up and causes us to walk again. It is grace that gives us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive. It is grace that raises us from the dead in new birth. It is grace that grows us up. Grace renews us. Grace transforms us. And it is grace that ultimately conforms us to the image of the Son. It is grace that enables us to choose life. And it is grace that saves us and seals us for eternity. It is grace. And grace alone. The sinfulness of Solomon and all the kings following him eventually led to the division of Israel and the subsequent captivities and destruction of that city and that temple more than once. And though man did not, God kept his covenant. He kept it for his namesake and he kept it for the sake of his son. Because every time that city was destroyed, every time that temple was torn down, it was not, that was not the ultimate. That was just a picture that what, what we have in this natural realm is temporal. But what God has prepared for us in Christ is eternal. It's spiritual. It doesn't mean it's immaterial. It means it's eternal. It means it cannot end. It cannot be destroyed. It cannot be undone. In fact, it is being made new moment by moment by moment. Paul says this earthly tent is perishing day by day, but our inward man is being renewed moment by moment. God keeps his covenant for the sake of his son. It is the son who perfectly keeps the covenant in all things concerning the law and the prophets It is Jesus who fulfills all righteousness. God has not only kept the covenant, he has established a better covenant based on better promises in Jesus Christ. He has done this for his own glory and for the glory of that name that has been given, the name above all names. The first man was created for the coming of the second man. Do you understand that, church? Some people ask, I've had people ask me, well, why did God create Adam and put Adam in the garden if he knew Adam was going to fail? Did God know Adam was going to fail? Yes, God knew Adam was going to fail. But God created Adam and put Adam in the garden and set mankind on its course for the coming of the second man. He said, well, why why did God do it that way? Because God's writing the book. Because God's writing the story. And God is writing the best story, the best adventure, the best drama, 
the best romance that you could ever imagine. God is writing the story and he created the first man and he put him in the garden because he knew there was coming a second man. And it was the second man. It was the last Adam. It is Jesus Christ. He is the one who walked perfectly, who walked righteously, who fulfilled all righteousness. And we look to Jesus. Well, how do we walk perfectly? How do we walk righteously? Because that's what God demands. We do that as we walk in Jesus. If you are in Christ, you are in the one who walks perfectly before God. If you are in Christ, you are in the one who keeps all righteousness, who fulfills all righteousness, who fulfills the law utterly and totally and completely. God in his grace has given this gift to us in Jesus Christ. So the hope and the promise that God gives to us in Christ is not that God is permissive of our sin. It is that God in his grace before the foundation of the world has an eternal plan that he is working in all things even in the midst of our sin. In the midst of our pain. In the bitter things and the sweet things. The greatest picture of that is seen in the cross. The greatest crime ever perpetrated ever committed in humanity was the murder of the Son of God. The most bitter moment of creation, the most bitter moment was when the very Son, the very creator of heaven and earth was murdered by his creation. Can you think of a more bitter in a more dark time? Yet out of that murder of the Son of God by the very creation he created came the very salvation that we have today. Out of that bitterness came the sweetness. Out of that darkness, God brought light. And if God can do that in the death of his son on a cross, God will do that through your life and whatever you're walking through. This is the hope and the promise that God gives to us in Christ. God is working through our sin. God is working through our suffering. He's working through our pain. He works through our joys and our triumphs. God has ordered all things to bring about His eternal plan and His eternal purpose for His eternal glory. God is eternally working. In His grace, He will not leave His children alone. He loves us. So he will correct us. He's our father. He's our abiding life. He's our ever-present help. He is the one who's molding us, renewing us, conforming us. And all according to the image of the glorious son, the Lord Jesus. God is eternally working in us by the power of his spirit that he has graciously poured into our hearts. He is doing this in all things by his grace, for his glory, for even in the afflictions of this life, in all things he is working for us a far more exceeding weight of glory. This is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us, is working for us a far more eternal weight 
of glory, a glory that's beyond all comprehension. By grace, we are his people. And his promise is, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins and heal their land. The church is the people of God. And God has called us kings and priests that rule with him on this earth. Let us rule well. Let us humble ourselves before him and pray and seek his face and see his promise fulfilled for the good of our land, for the good of his people, and for the glory of his name. Amen.